On this prequel episode, we've got our Great Gatsby fan reaction. We're learning about Alfred Hitchcock and previewing Psycho. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Like the Podcast, where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode. It's the start of the spooky season. We've got a ton to talk about, so let's get right into it with our patron shoutouts. We have no new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, as always. And they are Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Ian from Wine Country, Ready for Spooky Season, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all so very much. You're all the best, and we're all hopefully ready for spooky season, because it's that time of year, the best time of year, spooky season. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now it's time to see what everybody had to say about The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon this week, we had five votes for the book, zero for the movie. Didn't Trounced. have Yeah, we didn't have any comments on Patreon this time. But over on Facebook, we had four votes for the book and zero for the movie. Trounced. <laughs> A little bit. Uh, Tracy said, I like them both, but I'm picking the book. I'm not very happy with the movie for the lack of jazz music. This is a story that is most recognized to represent the 1920s slash the jazz age. It needed some more, but I still think it is a great adaptation. Mm -hmm. So somebody agrees with you. More jazz. More jazz. Over on Twitter, we had eight votes for the book and seven for the movie. So undefeated 5040 on the previous platforms and all of a sudden movie coming out swinging on Twitter. Shelby Suderman said, I'm much more interested to see what retellings we get now that the book is in the public domain, but if I have to choose, it would be the movie. The characters are exhausting in both, but at least the movie has good performances and some interesting visuals. Mm -hmm. Kelly Napier said, For the love of Baz, I picked the movie. It's a visual spectacle, and since it stayed so true to the source material, I couldn't edge the book out this time. But as Katie has pointed out about other movies, it's too long. Could have been about a half hour shorter. Mm. I feel that way about most movies. This is true. Uh, <laughs> Kelly also had a great comment thread talking about Baz Luhrmann's movies. Mm-hmm. On it was it a different post? Yeah, it was on a different post. I yeah. think it was on the actual episode post. On the episode post, I would check recommend checking that out. She talked about the frenetic editing, which I know some other people mentioned, and I think uh april mentioned at one point um the frenetic editing in the first half half Mm -hmm. of the film and how once gatsby actually finally reunites with daisy how things slow down a bit i didn't notice that particular demarcation but i did mention in the episode how that frenetic pace of the beginning that i was like oh good lord yeah um did not sustain throughout the entire film and apparently this is a uh a repeated motif that Kelly has noticed in other Baz yeah. Luhrmann films too, yeah, which I thought seems, was really interesting. It seems to be a hallmark of his his style, yeah, as well as something that is polarizing, yeah. about his style. Yes. April Atmansky said, "I picked the book because I couldn't get past the five minute mark into this film. I guess I still hate Baz Luhrmann movies." That was the thing I've noticed the most about, oh, based on all this feedback is just how polarizing Baz Luhrmann is yeah. as a director. It seems that some people really enjoy his films and other people cannot stand them. So it, it is definitely like it's a very specific yes. style of filmmaking. Yes. So I totally get how like you're either going to be into it or you're not, or you're really not yep. going to be into no, it. No, Absolutely. It's it, his, his movies are not, uh, uh, particularly like, uh, universal. Like yeah. they're very, they're, 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 they're doing a thing and you have to buy into the thing. And if you don't, then you're not going to like them. And our last comment on Twitter was from Matt Nelson drawing lad who said, I don't have much to say about this one except for the fact that never having read the book and before even seeing the movie, I have been known to call people sport quite frequently. Make of it what you will. You are the great Gatsby, (laughs) is what I make of that. (laughs) I've never called anybody sport. I will occasionally call people chief as a joke, but 
I don't know. I don't know how erotic it is. Sometimes I just say it. I'm thinking about incorporating old sport into my old vernacular. Sport. It's it's fun. It is fun for sure. On Instagram, we had 15 votes for the book and four for the movie. The Leap underscore 77 said, By all measures, the book is a classic, but I just could not stand the choices they made with the casting, directing, and the weird aesthetic with the movie. Baz Luhrmann just did not seem like the right choice to lead this movie, and Leonardo DiCaprio is always a bad choice when I see his name in a movie, wow. which I'm sure I'm in the minority yeah, on this. My reaction was, <laughs> wait, what? Plus the fact that a lot of people were throwing Gatsby-style parties after the movie came out proved to me that a lot of people just did not interpret the book properly. Okay, I have uh, several things to say about this comment. First, I agree that maybe Baz Luhrmann wasn't the right choice. Some people like him, some people I, don't. I think the interesting thing about him as the director is that I feel like on paper it he seems sense. like a very yes. good choice. But I don't know that it worked out for me. The thing that I found really interesting is that, I, and I meant to say this during the episode and I forgot to, is that I think you keep the casting identical. And it even makes sense with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, you, you, with Leonardo DiCaprio as Gatsby. In, the, in my mind at one point during the episode, and then I forgot to mention it, my re, um, redo of this w would keep everything the same in terms of casting, but change the director from Baz Luhrmann to Martin Scorsese hmm. because I think that if you've ever seen the Wolf of Wall Street, the, uh, there, not that there's a ton of like direct similarities, but I think cause a, a lot of that movie is about the opulence and the, the stock market crash and all the weird, like mm -hmm. again, the opulence of, of it all. And Leonardo DiCaprio plays a kind of similar, not, not similar. He's like a terrible, terrible person in, in Wolf like of dark Wall Street. Gatsby. Yes. He's like evil Gatsby, like even more than, you know, Gatsby's a very flawed person, but he's like evil Gatsby. <laughs> but I think there's a lot that the similarities in terms of like the tone you would go for, because mm -hmm. it is like a comedy mixed with a drama that is again, just sort of like a, a whole, all of it's sort of a commentary on, um, the financial system and and uh, and excess and all that sort of stuff and what it does to people and what it turns them into. It seems like spot on, and I think you'd get a much more restrained, uh, maybe digestible version of the film from Scorsese that would make a lot that I think would work for a lot more people than the Baz Luhrmann version does. Mm -hmm. So that would be That's my fair. thing. I think that would be an interesting version of it. Would be again everything the same except Scorsese instead of Luhrmann, but. Who knows? Uh, and then my other note that I thought your last point, the uh, fact that a lot of people were throwing Gatsby style parties after the movie came out proved to me that a lot of people just didn't interpret the book correctly. I would disagree with that in the sense that I think I we both would have interpreted the book properly and understand what it's going for in the movie. And, and I, even the, the language of interpret the book properly is we've talked about, you know, that's also a slightly limiting way to describe sort of interpreting a book, I think. And I'm sure we've said things along that line in the past. Um, my larger point, though, is that I think you could inter properly interpret the book and still want to throw a Gatsby party. Yeah. Like, I, I don't I think agree. those things are I don't think those things are. I don't think they're like, mutually, exclusive. mutually exclusive or opposed in any way. You can understand that the excess and the and the, and the weird you know, uh, commentary or not weird. You can understand the commentary on excess and extravagance and all this sort of an opulence and stuff that, that, uh, Fitzgerald and, and Lerman and others were going for in Gatsby and still want to throw a fun party where you dress like it's the 1920s. Like you can yeah. do both. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, I mean the idea of like how to interpret anytime you're talking about media analysis, whether that's a book or a movie or whatever, I think there is there is kind of a fine line between like there are multiple ways to interpret something and okay, well yeah, you missed the well, point. Well, yes, you just got it wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. There there are lots of ways to interpret a proper or uh, lots of good ways to interpret something, and but there are still bad ways to interpret yeah. things. Yes. Um, and I think being generous to what the leap is saying here is that the people throwing those parties did in fact miss the point and weren't were not in fact aware of the irony like because like we we could throw a, a sort of a, a ridiculous over-the-top opulent party or go to one understanding 
again, mm-hmm. sort of ir- inherent irony in, in that, and and in and in sort of glamorizing that type of um, shindig. Uh, but I guess the, their point, more specifically, is that a lot of people probably didn't understand. Well, yeah, that. and and that's yes. fair, I guess. Yes. But. I, I, but I, I agree with you that I don't think the two are necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. But, you know. I guess that, yeah, <laughs> that's all I was pushing back on is to say that lots of people threw those parties, meaning they missed the point. I don't think you can necessarily def, um, know for sure that people throwing those parties did miss the point. I think you can get the point and still throw those parties. It's probably more likely that they didn't get the point, but I think you can. <laughs> I think you can. Because we do talk about all the time how just the vast majority of people's critical sort of comprehension abilities are terrible so like most people don't understand the point of most media like just in general it's i'm always astounded by the the pure sheer number of people who just do not understand what media is trying to say i think a good example of something with that kind of fine line is if you look at romeo and juliet yeah there are multiple ways to look at romeo and juliet but if i see somebody like waxing poetic about how romantic it is i'm kind of like okay okay you you maybe missed the point point. yes absolutely yeah and we talked about the same thing with like fight club and stuff yeah yeah absolutely and our other comment on instagram was from jedian nine who said somehow despite having a degree in english i've managed to live my life without ever having to read this book until now And even though I do appreciate the heightened reality Baz injects into the movie, there's a reason we're still talking about the book a hundred years later and not the movie. I was honestly on the fence about this one all week until I listened to your verdict, which sort of nudged my thoughts into a final decision. Book is greater than the movie. There you go. Uh, And we always love to hear when somebody reads something for the first time Mm -hmm. because of our show. That's fun. Cool. So where do we end up in the final numbers? Our final winner was the book with 32 votes to the movie's 11. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back to that Twitter t- tally for a minute. Yeah. Because what happened on Twitter I thought was really interesting. I don't have any like big ideas about what it means. I just thought it was interesting because the, the movie got destroyed on every other platform. Yes. Absolutely decimated yeah, in it, favor of the book. It would have been 24 to 4 without Twitter. Yeah. On on Twitter, the movie was actually in the lead for a long time. Yeah, and the the book eventually like overtook it, but it was still very glo- close. It was eight to seven, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. It I is don't think we've ever had that happen before. Yeah, where one particular and it may just be a, a weird happenstance of the particular people who engage on that platform because our mm-hmm. the, our fans do tend to engage on the specific platforms that they. Yes. I assume use the most or whatever. Yes. So, you know, we get like Shelby always comments on Twitter, blah, right. blah, blah, et cetera. We so, have, like, yeah, we have a handful of people who engage on multiple platforms, but like in it, general. I, not that they don't engage on multiple to... platforms, but like when they're leaving their feedback for an episode tends to like always be on. Yes. You I know agree. what I mean? One platform. Yeah. And so I don't know if maybe there's some weird just a chance sort of, uh, you know, just of coincidence that on this particular occasion, the people who engage most on twitter happen to be people who like that movie yeah might have just been weird dumb chance or there may be some larger strange <laughs> uh like i don't know what it means it. i, I just know. thought it was interesting because like that first day when we posted the polls i was like watching them and the movie was getting just absolutely decimated yeah. everywhere except for twitter yeah where it was winning yeah very interesting All right, it's now time to learn a little bit about Alfred Hitchcock. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Alfred Joseph Hitchcock was born on August 13th, 1899 in Leightonston on the outskirts of East London. Alfred was the youngest of three children and his father was a grocery store owner, a green grocer, as they call it over there across the pond, uh, just as his father had been. And they, for quite some time in different locations, lived above their grocery stores that they owned. The Hitchcocks were fairly well-to-do, living in a five-bedroom Victorian house complete with a maid, cook, chauffeur, and gardener, and also renting a seaside house every summer in Cliftonville, Kent. All these English places that I don't know where they are. I mean, I've heard of Kent, but... (laughs) I don't know in relation I could to London. Not, I could not point at a map of nope. England and tell you where Kent was. Nope. No idea. 
Uh, Hitchcock has said these summers by the sea were his first was where he first became quote class conscious, noticing the differences between the wealthy tourists who came to visit and the lower class locals who lived and worked in the area. One of his favorite stories for interviewers was about his father sending him to a local police station when he was five. Uh, he had a note, uh, and then that uh, <laughs> that he brought and and handed to the, the like the, I guess the, one of the policemen at the station. And the policeman read the note and then locked him in a cell for a few minutes, saying, "Quote: This is what we do to naughty boys." End quote. The experience left him, uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, with a lifelong fear of policemen. In 1973, he told Tom Snyder, quote, that he was scared stiff of anything to do with the law and that he wouldn't even drive a car in case he got a parking ticket. So, yeah, just a little, a little good tra- childhood trauma there. <laughs> it does seem like kind of an extreme thing to do to your five-year-old. Terrible thing to do. Yeah, it's just awful. Uh, so the family moved several times in Hitchcock's childhood and setting up new businesses as they went. Uh, at one point, they, they set up a fish and chip shop for a while and then uh, also had a fishmonger store, like a fish store like market um, right down the street from it. Uh, and they actually lived above the fish and chip shop. Uh, when he was 11, they moved to Stepney. Again, no idea where that is, uh, where Alfred was enrolled in St. Ignatius's College, uh, which is a Jesuit grammar school, with a, uh, which had a reputation for their very strict discipline at the time. The priest would use a hard rubber cane on the boys always at the end of the day, so they had to sit through class anticipating punishment if they had been written up for it earlier in the day. Uh, Hitchcock would say that this is where he developed his keen sense of fear. <laughs> Uh, biographer Gina Dare would report that Hitchcock was, quote, an average or slightly above average pu- pupil, uh, but Hitchcock would say that he was usually among the four or five at the top of the class. At the end of his first year, his work in Latin, English, French, and religious education were noted by his teachers. His favorite subject was geography, and he became interested in maps, railways, and bus timetables, which I thought was interesting, and he could apparently recite all the stops on the Orient Express. Hmm. Uh, he would tell later in life, he would tell Peter Bogdanovich that, quote, the Jesuits taught me organization, control, and to some degree, analysis, end quote. <laughs> uh, at a young age, Hitchcock wanted to be an engineer and actually enrolled in night classes at the age of 14, where he studied mechanics, electricity, acoustics, and navigation. But when his father died of kidney disease in 1914, Alfred uh, took a job for 15 shillings a week as a technical clerk at Henley Telegraph and Cable Companies to help support his family. Uh, but he also continued his night classes at this time, now working on uh, art history, painting, economics, and political science. Uh, so when World War I rolls around, uh, Alfred actually was too young at the time to enlist uh, but in 1917, he turned 18 and he had to go enlist at that point, And he received a C3 classification, which meant, quote, he was free from serious organic disease, able to stand service conditions in gar- uh, able to stand service conditions in garrison at home, only suitable for sedentary work, end quote. So apparently he, they didn't think he was ready for the field. So he ended up not actually uh, ever like going into combat or anything like that. After the war, Hitchcock took an interest in creative writing. In June of 1919, he became a founding editor and business manager of Henley's in-house publication, The Henley Telegraph, which uh, sold for six pence a copy, uh, to which he submitted several short stories. Uh, Henley's then promoted him to their advertising department, where he wrote copy and drew graphics for advertisements for electric cable. Uh, He enjoyed that job a lot. He would stay late at the office to examine proofs, and he told Francois Truffaut, which we'll talk more about later, that this was his, quote, first step towards cinema, end quote. He enjoyed watching films, especially American cinema, and at the age of 16, uh, read the trade papers, and he was really influenced by filmmakers like Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, and Buster Keaton, and particularly liked Fritz Lang's Der Mude Tod. I don't know how to... It's German. (laughs) Fritz Lang's a great director. Uh, I think the only film... I've seen one or two films by him. There's one that I own the Criterion Collection of called M, which is a fantastic silent film. Mostly silent film. I don't know if it's all silent. I can't recall now. It's mostly silent. Mm. Um, or no, it might not be a silent film at all. It might be one of the first sound films. It's been a long time since I watched it. I watched it in a film class. Uh, great movie, though, um, directed by Fritz Lang. Uh, while still at Henley's, uh, which again is that uh, electric uh, telegraph and cable company, uh, he read in a trade paper that famous players Lasky, uh, the production arm of Paramount Pictures that was opening a studio in London, or was opening a studio in London. 
and that they were planning to film a film a movie called the sorrows of satan so he ended up producing some drawings for the title cards and sent that work to the studio they would then hire him and in 1919 he began working for islington studios in pool street hoxton as a title card designer uh, he would go while he was there. He would gain a bunch of experience as a co-writer, an art director, and production manager on at least eighteen different silent films. When Paramount would eventually pull out of London in 1922, Hitchcock was hired as an assistant director by a new film, uh, a new film company run in the same location. Uh, over the intervening years, Hitchcock would go on to uh, direct several films, some lost, some flops, but throughout all of that, the critics and people in the industry recognized Hitchcock's talent with a Daily Express headlining uh, calling him, quote, a young man with a mastermind, end quote. He also spent time working in Germany on some movies, and while there, he, he grew uh, a huge appreciation for German cinema, uh, which was one of the pioneering locations for film during the early 20th century. Um, and had a ton of great influence on his future work. Hitchcock's big luck, his big break, came with his first thriller, The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, in 1927. This movie is about the hunt for a serial killer wearing a black cloak and carrying a black bag who's murdering young blonde women in London, and only on Tuesdays. I've never seen this movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a landlady suspects that her lodger is the killer, but he turns out to be innocent. Innocent. To convey the impression of footsteps uh, being heard from an upper floor, Hitchcock had a glass floor made so that the viewer could see the lodger pacing up and down in his room above the landlady. So you could actually see his footsteps. Um, apparently, Hitchcock wanted the leading man to be guilty for the, uh, in the film, um, or at least to end ambiguously. But the star of the film was this actor named Ivor, Ivor Novello. Uh, a matinee idol and the star system quote unquote meant that novello could not be the villain in the movie so huh. he, <laughs> he had to come up with a different villain uh it was released in january of 1927 the lodger was a commercial and critical success in the uk uh hitchcock would go on to tell Truffaut later that the film was the first of his to be influenced by german expressionism quote in truth you might almost say that the lodger was my first picture end quote he also made his first cameo in that film where he's depicted sitting in a newsroom and in the second uh, time you see him standing in a crowd as the leading man is arrested, which would be a thing that Hitchcock would go on to be famous right. for, making cameos in all of his films. Uh, Hitchcock would marry Alma Revel, Revel? I actually don't know how to pronounce her last name, in 1926 and continued to have success in English, England's film industry with numerous successful films, but by 1938, he felt he had reached his peak in Britain. Over the years, he had received numerous offers, contract offers, from production companies, producers in the United States, but he had turned all of them down because he disliked having that contractual obligation, uh, and he thought the projects were kind of, like, dumb and boring. However, producer David Oselznik, who was the producer for Gone with the Wind, offered him a concrete proposal to make a film based on the sinking of the RMS Titanic which never happened. That film never mm. was made. It was ultimately shelved. But Selznick persuaded Hitchcock to come to Hollywood, and in July 1938, Hitchcock flew to New York and found there that he was already a celebrity because his movies uh, that he had done in England were very popular already in the U.S., and he was featured in magazines and gave interviews on radio stations. Uh, in Hollywood, Hitchcock actually met Selznick for the first time, and uh, they offered him a four-film contract for approximately $40,000 for each picture, which would be the equivalent of $735,000 in 2020. Hmm. Uh, so pre-1950, during World War II, and then the years shortly thereafter, Hitchcock would make over a dozen films in the U.S. before finally entering what was be known as sort of his golden era as peak Hitchcock years starting in the 50s with Dial M for Murder. He would follow that directly with Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, the Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Wrong Man, which I've never seen any of those, from mm -hmm. To Catch a Thief to The Wrong Man, I've never seen any of those. But then Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, and then The Birds in 1963. Also, uh, he had his TV show Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which he uh, was producer, director, all that sort of stuff on. And there was a number of TV, I think like 17 or 18 TV episodes, basically, that were very similar to something like Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, and, and it's like each one is like a little short story kind mm -hmm. of self-contained um, type of thing. What's the word I'm looking for? Not episodic. Uh, it's got a word. Uh, anthology series kind uh, of type yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think would be the right way to call it. Hitchcock was knighted in 1980, but uh, it was uh, too ill to travel to the ceremony. And he died of kidney failure on April 29th, 1980 at the age of 80. 
Uh, before we wrap up, I think it's important to note that Hitchcock had a very complicated and at times adversarial relationship with actors. We mentioned this a little bit in our Birds episode, because uh, specifically women actors was an issue. He was known for having remarked that, quote, actors should be treated like cattle, end quote. Uh, specifically Tippi Hedren, who was starred in The Birds, and others have accused Hitchcock of assault, with people coming out both in defense of Hitchcock and in support of Hedren and other actors and actresses who have have brought or told their stories. I haven't taken a ton of time to read up on all this information, but there appears to be a pretty good primer for this article on LitHub. And um, we'll share this in like the link for this episode and stuff. Uh, the, the title of the article, if you just want to Google it, is The Dark Side of an Auteur on Alfred Hitchcock's Treatment of Women. Um, which again, it's not like an in-depth article, but it is sort of like at least more in-depth than what I'm going mm -hmm. into here. Uh, Hitchcock's career would span six decades and more than 60 films, and his effect on the industry is unable to be exaggerated, as films are some of the most inf influential films in all of cinema history. And I really didn't even begin to scratch the surface with this little sort of introduction here. If you want to do some more reading, you can check out Hitchcock slash Truffaut. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I kept quoting Truffaut, quoting Hitchcock. Uh, that's a book by famed director Francois Truffaut, who spent 50 hours interviewing Alfred Hitchcock about his life and career. There's also apparently a critically acclaimed 2015 documentary based on that book that's available for free on Tubi. So mm. you can watch that if you don't want to read the book. You just want to watch a movie based on the book. Uh, supposed to be very good, like won some awards and stuff, the documentary. Uh, the book is also supposed to be very good. Uh, or there's another book called Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness in Light, which I saw available on Amazon, um, had pretty good reviews. There's also a documentary that came out this year called I Am Alfred Hitchcock. Have not seen it, can't seem to find it anywhere online, and I cannot attest to its quality, but it had pretty okay reviews hmm. on the sources I saw. And, and the trailer not, for it looked it interesting. Doesn't like it's streaming anywhere? I could not find it streaming hmm. anywhere, um, but it did release 2021, so I don't oh, know, maybe so it's, it's making like a, like maybe it's in uh, festivals or something, I don't right. know. I don't. I couldn't find much information about it, but if you look up Ian Alfred Hitchcock, you can find at least the IMDb page and whatnot. Mm. So, uh, but I would recommend the uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Um, although I don't know how critical that. Is. I don't think that particular, at least the book, I don't think is particularly critical of Hitchcock. I don't know if the documentary is. I have not seen it. Yeah. And I don't know if any of the other ones are. But there is um, more to Hitchcock's story than is often reported in terms of some some less desirable things so it's something to to look into all right now we're going to learn a little bit about the book that one of hitchcock's most famous movies is based on psycho <laughs> quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime Psycho is a 1959 horror novel by American writer Robert Block this novel is considered to be one of Block's most enduring works and one of the most influential horror books of the 20th century. Um, Straight up didn't know this was based on a book. A hundred percent did not know this movie was based on a book. It's wild to me that I, think I didn't I know that. But did know that somewhere in my brain. I had no idea. But this is not a genre that I read. Right. So yeah, I mean, me either. But still, I I just amazed that i didn't know it wasn't based on a book or that it was based yeah. on a book uh, apparently yeah his best work and very influential book uh, he did write two sequels to it psycho 2 in 1982 so quite a ways later yeah and psycho house in 1990 psycho house <laughs> yeah they're both really great titles yeah psycho house is something <laughs> yeah uh, neither of them were related to any of the film sequels, though they were kind of their own separate thing. Yeah. A fourth installment in this series uh, was titled Robert Block's Psycho Sanitarium. Mm. Uh, it was written by Chet Williamson Chet. in 2016. Yeah. Uh, so not written by him. And that book is set between the events of the original novel and okay. Psycho 2. 
So it's kind of like an in-between pool, I guess. Yeah. So if you are into true crime uh, and that kind of serial killer content Mm -hmm. that so many are into these days, then you probably know that there is a real-world serial killer connection in Psycho. Uh, In November 1957, which was two years before the novel was published, uh, Ed Gein was arrested in his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, for the murders of two women. Uh, And then when police went and searched his home, they found a lot of very grisly things. uh, Furniture, silverware, clothing made of human skin and body parts, among other items. Uh, which was why he was nicknamed the Butcher of Plainfield. Yeah, Gein is is one of the one. I mean, and there's lots, but one of the people mo- most offsided for inspiration for a lot of yes, like movie, a lot of horror movie villains, villains and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I saw um, uh, like Texas Norman Chainsaw Bates, Massacre, yeah, uh, Leatherface, uh, um, uh, Hannibal, uh, um, a little bit. Uh, what's his name? Um, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. What you're thinking of? Or, or, um, or then, Buffalo, uh, Buffalo Bill, rather Bill specifically, is what was I meant. another one that I saw. Yeah, I meant Buffalo Bill, but specifically yeah. cited. Yeah. Now, at the time of Gein's arrest, Block was living actually just about 35 miles away um, in another Wisconsin town that I did not put the name of because I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Um, And he says that he was not aware of the Gein case at the time. Um, He began writing Psycho with the notion that the man next door may be a monster, unsuspected even in the gossip-ridden microcosm of small-town life. Mm -hmm. Um, So supposedly he was not aware of this case, and it was kind of a coincidence. Uh, The novel was almost completed when Gein and his activities were revealed, so Block inserted a line alluding Hmm. to Gein into one of the final chapters. Gein. Gein, yes. It's fine. I I know. I I know, yeah. I put put the thing in there, and I just want to say it differently. I mean, it looks like Gein, to be fair. To be fair. Um, So I, I have not gotten to the end of this novel yet, so I'm interested to see how the book references that case. Um, Block was apparently surprised years later when more details about the case came out and he discovered um, how closely the imaginary character I'd created resembled the real Ed Gein of both an overt act and apparent motivation. Yeah. So it's kind of spooky. Spooky. Perfect for spooky season. (laughs) Uh, Aside from the 1960 film that we will be discussing on this show, the novel was also adapted as a film in 1998. Which, which is we, just a, yeah, a direct shot-for-shot shot remake of Yeah, the I would call that film. more an adaptation of, of, the, the of the film, yes. maybe more so than the novel. Yeah. But um, the, it, There's a chance that maybe they kept some specific detail. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I've seen that movie, but I don't remember enough about it to know if it, what the differences are. Yeah. Because it's, from my memory and from everything I've always heard, like, essentially identically, like a shot-for-shot shot remake, so... The novel also served as the inspiration for the television series Bates Motel, which ran from 2013 to 2017. Yep. I have never seen any of that. I have not either. <laughs> I've heard it's pretty good. I believe I remember hearing that it was pretty good. People talking about it. I don't know. But yeah, I've never seen it either. All right. Let's go ahead now and find out a little bit more about 1960s Psycho. The bathroom. <laughs> Well, they cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here. Very slowly across the showers on there was no sound. And uh... 
As I mentioned, Psycho is a 1960 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock and written by Joseph Stefano, whose main other credit that I recognized uh, was uh, The Outer Limits, which is also a similar to like the Twilight Zone mm-hmm. style show. A very, way, very, very similar to the Twilight Zone instead of standalone little like horror story kind of spooky story things. Uh, it stars Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, Vera Miles as Lila Crane, Janet Leigh as Janie Leigh? It says Janie no, Leigh. It's Janet. I thought it was Janet too, but yeah, I guess I mistyped that. Yeah. Janet Leigh as Marion Crane, John, uh, and then the other ones I don't have these uh, these people I don't have uh, character names for because those are the main characters. Uh, and also stars John Gavin, Martin Balsam, John McIntyre, Simon Oakland, and a bunch of other people from back then that you've likely never heard of. But it does start Pat Hitchcock, who is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's only child, hmm. as Caroline. Little cameo. Yep. Uh, it's in a scene I read. I can't remember now. I think she's not a child in the film. I think she's older, mm. but we'll, I think I might have a note about it later. Uh, the film has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 97% on Metacritic, and an 8.5 out of 10 on IMDb, placing it at number 37 on IMDb's top films list. The film was nominated for four Oscars, winning none of them, but they were for Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Black and White, and best art direction, which back then did they divide it? They divided black it for and white a while. Color? That's interesting. I didn't know uh, that. They no longer do that. You can just mm-hmm. win best cinematography. Period. But yes, when right. they when color. I mean, there are so few films made in black right. and white now. Um, but for a period there, where that crossover time, when mm-hmm. there was lots, still fair number of films in black and white, and but color was becoming more and more prominent. For I don't know how long it lasted, because uh, this was actually my first exposure to this thing too i was like mm. oh that's interesting they had two because and then i scrolled yeah. through and the, yeah they have two different categories they had a color cinematography and a black and white cinematography uh so yeah interesting um and best art direction according to wikipedia this film made 50 million dollars against a budget of eight hundred and six thousand nine hundred and forty seven dollars down to the dollar <laughs> we have a budget here uh, so Peggy Robertson, Hitchcock's longtime assistant, had read Anthony uh, Butcher's positive review of the novel in his, quote, criminals at, or not quote, sorry, in his criminals at large column in the New York Times and decided to show the book to Alfred Hitchcock. However, studio readers at Paramount Pictures had already rejected uh, the, the novel for a film. Uh, Hitchcock, though, bought the rights anonymously to the novel for 9,000. I saw in multiple places, one place I saw $9,000 here. I saw $9,500 in the ballpark of $9,000 and reportedly ordered Robertson, his assistant to buy all the copies she could find to preserve the novel's surprises. What? Like buy out (laughs) all of them that we can find so that people won't get spoiled. Basically Alfred Hitchcock in 1960 was like, out here clamping down on spoilers for his <laughs> movies. Uh, so Paramount executives uh, did not want to make the movie, and they they balked at Hitchcock's proposal and re- refused to provide his usual budget. In response to this, Hitchcock offered to film Psycho super quick and super cheap in black and white using his uh, his TV show crew, basically, the Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock Presents television crew. Paramount executives still rejected this cost-conscious approach, claiming that their sound stages were booked uh, and that the industry was in a slump. Uh, their official stance was that the book was, quote, too repulsive and, quote, impossible for film. Uh, and nothing but another of his star-studded mystery thrillers would, thrillers would suffice for him to make for Paramount. Uh, Hitchcock countered that he personally would finance the film and film it at Universal International Studios using his Shamley Productions crew if Paramount would distribute it. And in lieu of his usual $250,000 director's fee, he proposed a $60 stake in the film Negative. Uh, and this combined offer was accepted by Paramount. So he really believed in this. He project. really believed in it. And he basically said, look, you don't have to pay me. I'll just take the cut of what it mm. makes, basically. Um, which that's a thing that's still pretty common or mm-hmm. still fairly common uh, if if people are trying to get something made, deferring payment. Yeah. Into the box office and be like, look, if it succeeds, I'll make money. We'll all make money. But you don't have to pay me, you know, my normal fee ahead up front. Uh, nearly the entire film was shot with a 50 millimeter lens on a 35 on 35 millimeter cameras, uh, and this was done to provide an angle of view very similar to the human vision, uh, which helped to further involve the audience in the story that they were seeing. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about the shower scene here in a second, but the final shot in the shower scene, which starts with as an extreme close up on Marion's eye and zooms in and out, 
proved super difficult for her to do because the water was splashing in her eyes and kept making her want to blink. And the cameraman also had trouble because he had to manually focus the camera while moving it, which is hilarious hearing that. I guess it's 1960. I don't know. I This is just the thing I read on Wikipedia about this particular scene. The fact that he had to manually focus the camera while moving it is a thing that movies have been doing forever. Like, that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There must be more behind that story of why that would be. Yeah, particularly maybe it was difficult. like a, a difficult angle or something. Or I don't know. Yeah, there's a chance because it was in like where they were filming. Maybe it was cramped and awkward yeah. to do. I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure there's much more about it somewhere because there's and we're going to talk about there are numerous documentaries literally about not only this movie, but about that one scene. Mm hmm. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's cameo is a uh, signature occurrence in most of his films, as we talked about. And in Psycho, he can be seen through a window wearing a Stetson standing outside Marion Crane's office so that you can look out for him in a cowboy hat. So speaking of the shower scene, the murder of Janet Leigh's character is a pivotal scene in the movie. One of the best known scenes in all of cinema. Uh, And because of that, it's spawned a lot of myths and legends. It was shot uh, over the course of a week from December 17th to December 23rd of 1959. And Leigh had actually uh, postponed the filming twice. Firstly, because she had a cold. And then second, she was on her period, apparently, and didn't want to do it at the time. Uh, The finished uh, scene runs some three minutes. And it's a bunch of edits. There's tons of edits. uh, And has produced contradictory attempts to count its parts. Hitchcock himself... Uh, also contributed to this by telling Truffaut that, quote, there were 70 camera setups for 45 seconds of footage and maintaining to other interviewers that there were, quote, 78 pieces of film. In a 2017 documentary titled 7852, the Hitchcock's, or 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene uh, by uh, Alexandra Philippe, Philippa. Uh, This this documentary, the reason it's titled that is... um, is because of the 78 pieces of film mm-hmm. in the 52 seconds or whatever that it is. Um, or no, 78 shots and 52 cuts that change cinema forever. That's the tagline for this documentary. But in his careful description of the shower scene, film scholar Philip J. Scary counted only 60 separate shots, and he actually made up a table breaking down the middle 34 shots by type, camera position, angle, movement, focus, POV, and subject. So people have just taken super deep dives into this scene. We all got a lot of time on our hands. I mean, it's film, it's film (laughs) theory, film, (laughs) film scholarship. Uh, This I thought was interesting Uh, to capture the straight on shot of the tower of the shower head, which you see several times, I think, in the scene from my memory. The camera had to be equipped with an extra long lens. uh, And then the inner holes of the shower head were blocked and the camera was placed a sufficient distance away so that the water, while being appearing to be aimed directly at the lens, actually went around the camera and passed it. So Hmm. it didn't ruin the camera. I also read on IMDb that that shower head for that shot was a special shower head that was six feet in diameter that they made a huge one so that it could shoot around the, the camera. Um, but then they just built everything to scale for that one shot so that it looked like a normal size shower head, but it's actually giant. I don't know if that's accurate on Wikipedia and other sources that I found did not mention the six foot shower head, but IMDb mentioned a six foot shower head. So I don't know. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the famous soundtrack in that scene, uh, in that scene of the violins and the violas and cellos, um, was an original piece by Bernard Herman titled "The Murder." Hitchcock originally intended to have no music for the sequence and almost all the motel scenes. He didn't intend to have any music, but Herman insisted that he try this composition that he had scored for the scene. And, and Hitchcock would go on to agree that it vastly intensified the scene. And because of this, he nearly doubled Herman's salary for the film. Also, uh, fun fact, the blood in the scene was Hershey's chocolate syrup, which shows up better on black and white film and has a more realistic sort of look and feel than stage blood, mm. uh, which I have used when I shot my student film for my practicum in college. Uh, half of my movies in black and white, because, of course, <laughs> and um, I I also used Hershey syrup, chocolate syrup for the blood in a couple of scenes that I shot in black and white because of this is literally because of hearing about this when I was younger. And it does. It works well. Uh, the sound of the knife entering the flesh when she's being stabbed was apparently created by plunging a knife into a cassava melon. 
Uh, specifically melon. a cassava melon. Very important to know. Uh, another popular myth uh, is that the film or that the scene was shot using ice cold water uh, to make Lay's screaming more realistic. And she has denied this on numerous occasions, saying the crew was very accommodating and they used warm or hot water throughout the entire shoot uh, and that all the screams were hers and just she was just acting. <laughs> another myth is that the uh, that graphic designer Saul Bass base. I don't know how to say that guy's name. A very famous designer. Saul Bass directed the shower scene. That's another myth that he directed it. And this has been refuted by several people associated with the film, including Lay, who stated, quote, absolutely not. I have emphatically said this in any interview I've ever given. I've said it to his face in front of other people. I was in that shower for seven days. And believe me, Alfred Hitchcock was right next to this camera for every one of those 70 odd shots. So apparently that's all a myth. Uh, and then we have a few random fun IMDb facts that I always love to include, which are the first one, quote, not quote, first one, Walt Disney refused to allow Hitchcock to film at Disneyland in the early 60s because Hitchcock had made, quote, that disgusting movie Psycho, end quote. Uh, after the movie's relief, Hitchcock received uh, release. Hitchcock received an angry letter from the father of a girl who had who had refused to bathe, take baths after seeing Diab Diabolique in a 1955 movie, which I've never heard of. But after she saw that movie, she refused to take baths, and now she refused to shower after seeing Psycho. Hitchcock reportedly sent back a note simply saying, "Quote: Send her to the dry cleaners." End quote. <laughs> Uh, the Bates House, which is uh, the famous set or, you know, little miniature. I think it's a miniature. No, it's not a miniature. The famous Bates House from the movie uh, has been moved from its original location, but it does still reside on a universal lot. Uh, and the motel has been rep replicated and it's a regular stop on the Universal Studios tram tour. If you go visit Universal Studios, you can see the Bates House and motel. Uh, so it's kind of hearkening back to some of the other stuff we talked about on set. Uh, apparently Hitchcock would refer to Anthony Perkins as quote, master Bates. Uh, and, and Hitchcock mm. did have the reputation of often harassing male and female cast members like this. See Tippy Hedren, Billy mummy, etc. cetera. Uh, and this is, I thought super fascinating. The official trailer for psycho in 1960 ran on for over six minutes and 30 seconds which is obviously very long a very for a long trailer. trailer. I feel like you get the whole movie. I Trailers already give away the whole movie in two minutes sometimes. Right? Six minutes. It's wild. Wild. But back then, trailers also did give away a lot. Yeah. Um, they kind of always have. Like, people like the thing, like, oh, trailers, they gave away the whole movie. It's like trailers, have, uh, they've done that forever. They've kind of done that forever i wonder if they did i've never seen the official trailer i have not this. either i wonder if they did like uh like when it like had him like talk and like introduce they've the movie also, kind of very thing. famously he does a lot of his trailers yeah. that way this one might be one of those i've not seen it i'll try to find it um i i will be cutting it. i always cut in the trailer for the prequel episode i don't know if i'll find mm -hmm. that one or not um but very often he would because he was so famous at this point he would yeah they would put him on camera and he would like talk about the movie yeah it's like my next masterpiece blah blah, blah you know and he would like <laughs> talk about it and then they would show clips and then come back to him and they'd like he'd be on set talking like that was pretty standard where yeah. it almost is like more of a featurette than it is a trailer right. almost like they might call it a trailer but it kind of almost yeah like a featurette or something um anyways where can people watch it well as always you can check with your local library pretty good chance they might have a copy of this movie yes seems likely or if you still have a local video rental store you can check with them otherwise you can stream this with a subscription through fubo showtime showtime through prime or direct tv or you can rent it for around three to four dollars through apple tv amazon youtube Voodoo, AMC Theaters on Demand, Redbox, DirecTV, or Spectrum TV. Fantastic. Those are all the places you can watch it. We'll be talking about it in one week's time. I'm excited to see. I've seen this movie at least mm -hmm. two or three times over the course of my life. I'm excited to watch it again, and I'm particularly excited to see what does actually come from the book. Mm -hmm. um, especially because there's so many iconic moments and scenes in the movie. I'm really interested to see how much of that 
really translates from the book or was, you know, Hitchcock and his writer and the rest of the people sort of um, mm -hmm. coming up with stuff. Now, I mentioned this at the end of our uh, Great Gatsby episode when we talked about what we were doing next, but I'll, I'll mention it again. Not only have I never seen this movie, I really don't know anything about it yeah. other than like the shower scene reference. Yeah. And I don't think I've even seen that scene like all the way through. I just know the reference. Yeah. So now I think I've read further far enough into the book. I forgot that, like, you I... said that. And I'm really glad I didn't include any spoilers other than like the shower scene. Kind yeah. Of, but that's not really a spoiler. It's not really a spoiler. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about this movie. And I think I have gotten to a point in the book now where like assuming that they're pretty similar. Yeah. I know what I have a good idea of what happens. Okay. But I'm going into this movie like mostly blind aside from reading the book. It's fun. It's one of those things that it's it's I will be interested to see how you respond to it because it's one of those things that lots of movies have and media in general have taken a lot from it. Mm -hmm. And so you'll watch it and you'll be like, oh, well, yeah. So I'll, I'll probably like you like might backwards recognize some references that. And I, I also wonder because it's one of those things where, you know, like especially like the ending. I do wonder because it's you've, you've you will have seen it done in lots of other things by mm -hmm. now or, or at least similar things doing lots of things doing something similar to what this movie does and like what the story does. Um I'll be interested to see how it, if it's as effective as it would have been, you know, mm -hmm. if this was the first time you had seen this story done this way. I don't know. I, I, it should be interesting. It should be really fun to talk about and really fun to kind of see your reaction. Uh, and yeah, it's a great kickoff for spooky season. Come back in one week's time. We're talking about Psycho. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.